London Aesthetic for Only Talk, which, as always, is kindly supported by the British Society of Aesthetics. And today we have Julian Dodd, who's going to be talking to us about what 4 minutes 33 seconds is. <laughs> okay, so I'll talk about the work here, uh, just to be clear. And uh, I thought what I'd do is, uh, a couple of days ago, is, is look through the abstract I sent you. And uh, it came as quite a shock. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, there's at least one claim I make in the abstract which I now think is false, um, but never mind. Um, okay, so four minutes 33 seconds. The reason I'm doing this is that I work quite a bit in the philosophy of music, and it doesn't matter what topic I'm talking about. Somebody always says, what about four minutes 33 seconds? So I thought I'd sort of get it all done in one paper, so I wouldn't have to do it again. Okay, so this is a rather a nice book um, by Kyle Gann called No Such Thing as Silence, where he describes the premiere of this work. Um, so pianist David Tudor sat down at the piano on the small raised wooden stage. This is in the Maverick Hall, upstate New York. Closed the keyboard lid over the keys and looked at a stopwatch. Twice in the next four minutes, he raised the lid up and lowered it again careful to make no audible sound, although at the same time he was turning pages of the, of the music, which were devoid of notes. If you look at the, a score for 433, it just says one tacit, two tacit, three tacit. It's a piece in three movements. Okay. After four minutes and 33 seconds had passed, Tudor rose to receive applause, and thus was premiered four minutes, 33 seconds. So I'm kind of interested in what this is, and uh, this is quite new, hence the very long handout. So what's happened is that I've just been kind of thinking it through as, prepared, as I was preparing the handout. So I guess we could probably do this together. We could kind of sing it all together. Um, but I'll say a few extra things on passant. So what's going on here? I'll start by kind of telling you what I think the work is about, and then I'll get onto the issue of what it is, and as we'll see, that I, I want to kind of disambiguate that question, talk about its ontological nature, talk about uh, what art form it belongs to, and what artistic genre it belongs to. Okay, so I take it that the main aim of the work is to get us to attend to the kinds of sounds that we normally regard as ambient in performance environments. So people, this is, seems to be particularly true of the Bridgewater Hall, Manchester, unwrapping suites. Uh, shuffling, uh, coughing, but also there are natural sounds, you know, the sound of the street outside, again in Manchester, mainly roadworks, that kind of thing, to remind us that such sounds are ever-present and, as Stephen Davis says here, to bring us to appreciate their naked aesthetic potential. That's to say, the aesthetic interest they have for us when listened to purely as sounds and not, for example, as music or artistic events of any kind. Um, so here's the quote from Cage that effect. He says, there's no such thing as silence. I'll come back to that claim. What the audience thought was silence because they didn't know how to listen was full of accidental sounds. I love this quote, actually, particularly the end. You could hear the wind stirring outside during the first movement. During the second, raindrops began pattering the roof. And during the third, the, I love this bit, the people themselves made all kinds of interesting sounds as they <laughs> talked or walked out. Okay. 
So I take it that's the main aim, to draw our attention to these sounds and to encourage us to appreciate them aesthetically. I think there are subsidiary aims too. I won't talk so much about those today. Um, I think one serious aim is to try and compose a work in which all traces of the composer's ego are removed. Um, that's the same in which the sounds we listen to are none of them produced or selected or appropriated by performers carrying out his instructions. Okay. Um, I mean, Cage was very interested in kind of um, loosening his control on his compositions. So you may know he composed a piece called Imaginary Landscape Number no. 4. This is the piece for 12 radios. 12 radios, 24 performers, I think. Two knobs on each radio. This is the, this is the old days, folks. Okay? Uh, one is a volume knob, one is a tuning knob, and there are instructions in the score as to what the performers are to do. You know, twist it a little bit that way, then this one a little bit that way. And that's kind of loosening control on, as it were, the sound structure that's produced, because much is left to chance. It depends where the piece is being performed as to what radio sounds are picked up, et cetera, et cetera. And he was kind of interested in kind of withdrawing as a composer. Um, but this is, of course, another step altogether. The sounds that we're meant to be attending to are not in any sense produced or selected or appropriated by, by the people on stage. It's what he calls the accidental sounds that he's interested in. I think, too, he composed this piece. I mean, this is at least a piece in part about music, even if it isn't, as I think, itself music. Um, and I think he wanted to comment on the relative lack of interest in the Western classical music we listen to in concert halls. I think this was his view. So, I mean, it's quite a famous remark of his, which I'll read out. He said, um, I agree with the African prince who went to a concert in London and afterward was asked what he thought. He'd heard a programme of music that began with before Bach and went up to modern times, and he said, why did they play the same piece over and over again? Right, so I think that he was also making a comment on the kind of music we were listening to in concert halls. Maybe it might be worth our while listening to these kind of accidental sounds. They might be at least as, or maybe more, aesthetically interesting. He, he called these sounds kind of undomesticated. Okay, so going back to the main aim of the work, which is to get us to attend to these sounds normally regarded as ambient, how does the work do this? I take it by framing those sounds occurring during the temporal boundaries of the performance. So the performers or the collective performer's silence and inactivity directs our attention to the accidental sounds that Cage is interested in. I say performers possibly plural because nowhere in the score does it say that this is a piece for one pianist. Um, if you go on YouTube, I think you can see a full orchestral version that was um, delivered at the proms, I think the Scottish Symphony Orchestra, which was uh, particularly enjoyable. I liked it partly because the, the uh, conductor really got into the swing of things. So after each movement, he kind of went, <laughs> uh, good fun. Right. So, we're framing these sounds. The, 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 the performance frames the sounds, directs our attention to them, precisely by the performers not doing anything. And, of course, this is still a, you know, quite a controversial piece. It certainly was at the time. Um, 
as I say on the handout, its initial reception was characterised by puzzlement and quite a lot of irritation. Um, so a, a, a couple of sad little remarks from, from Cage. Um, he says at one point, I had friends whose friendship I valued and whose friendship I lost because of that. They thought that calling something he hadn't done, so to speak, music, was a form of pulling the wool over their eyes, I guess. And then he said, um, they didn't laugh. They were irritated when they realised nothing was going to happen. And they haven't forgotten it 30 years later. They're still angry. Okay. Um, that remark about they didn't laugh is, is kind of quite interesting. He, he, I mean, there is a kind of a fun element to this composition, I think. I, mean, I think he did want people to sort of reflect upon the conventions that are present in kind of concert halls and kind of um, have, ha have a bit of a chuckle about it. And in fact, the, 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 there's another clip on YouTube too of him where he was appearing on an American game show. You might have seen this. It was one of these, one of these American game shows where the panel have to guess the, um, the job of the kind of person they're being presented with what they do for a living. And one, one week, it's John Cage. He's in the, he's in the 60s. It's rather sweet. And, he, and the, the, the stage has been set up for him to perform one of his slightly outlandish pieces for kind of, you know, he's letting water into bars, he's turning radios on and off, he's popping balloons, kind of like strutting across the stage doing all these things, very carefully choreographed. And before he does that, the, 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 the host decides that they're not going to play the game anymore. They're just going to let him play this piece and see what everyone makes of it. And the host says, look, you do realise, Mr Cage, that um, some of this audience, even though they're, they're a nice audience, they're going to laugh at you. And he does say, well, you know, I'd rather laugh than anger. <laughs> Quite keen on laughter. OK, but they were still angry, these people. Um, and when the full orchestral version was broadcast on the BBC, um, there were certain online comments that were uh, prompted, in, including calling it absolutely ridiculous, a gimmick, stupid, and the emperor's new clothes. Uh, so this is a kind of a piece that's sort of prompted quite a lot of hostility. And I think that it's misunderstood and um, the re one of the reasons why the response has been so hostile is that it's been misunderstood and people don't know what kind of thing it is. They've been assessing it under the wrong categories, that's my thought. So my question is what sort of thing is this work? And I'll distinguish between three sub-questions. <clears throat> An ontological question, what's its ontological nature? And then two kind of art categorial questions. One is what I call art formal. Which art form does 433 belong to? Um, there's been a lot of debate about, well, a lot, people will say. There's been some, there's been some debate about that question, about whether it's music or not. Um, and Stephen Davies in 1997 wrote a paper about whether 433 is music, concluding that it's, it's not. Um, other people have responded by saying there can be silent music. Andrew Carnia, for one. So I'll be talking about that question. I'll also be talking about the question of what artistic genre or genres the work belongs to. Okay, so these questions matter, I think. Um, and damn it, I think they matter in themselves to philosophers of art. Um, but I also think that the correct answer to the ontological question, what kind of thing 
is this work, what kind of thing, ontologically speaking, is this work, what kind of entity is it, matters because I think the right answer to that question should ground those elements of our nascent folk ontological conception of it that's implicit in our artistic practices that survives rational reflection. So if a decent answer to the ontological question will sort of ground and explain why the work, why we think of the work as having those properties. But I also think that when it comes to the kind of latter two questions, the art formal and generic questions, uh, that there's an important kind of point from Walton here that knowing which categories of art that the work belongs to should enable us to understand it better, find the most value in it, and thereby perhaps enable us to diffuse some of the puzzlement and outrage that it's evoked. Okay. Now, you know, I think that there might have been a part of... I'm kind of guessing here, but... There might have been a, you know, a part of Cage who wanted to sort of prompt a little bit of outrage, but I also think that he wanted us to take this seriously. Um, he thought he was doing something something kind of uh, artistically serious. And at one point he said that it was the most difficult work of his to compose. Uh, not completely ironically, I don't think. And there's a context here too, which is, I mean, I, I, as I've mentioned already, Stephen Davies kind of wrote a seminal paper on this piece some years ago, uh, which um, characteristically, when I started thinking about this and corresponding with him, he told me was going to be in a kind of Australasian Journal of Philosophy's Greatest Hits volume. Um, but I think that Stephen gets the ontological question wrong and he commits some kind of omissions and errors with regard to the other questions too. So en passant I'll be kind of referring to Stephen contrasting my view with his. Okay. Right then, so moving on to the ontological question. So 433 I take it is a repeatable work for performance. It can be performed again and again in two different places at the same time. I'll talk as if that means that it's a type of which its performances are tokens. If you've got a different explanation of repeatability, I'm not too bothered by that. Just plug it in. But I'll be using the type language in explaining what's going on here. So two candidates. Well, there seem to be two candidates in the literature for what kind of type it is. Okay. So... Candidate one, I'll call it S, the silent work. And this is the view which seems to be supported by Roy Sorensen in his chapter in the Nudds and O'Callaghan book on sounds. And on this view, 433 is a type whose tokens are performances by musicians in which they aim to and largely succeed in remaining silent. Okay. Just in parentheses, it's kind of important that these people are musicians, right? I mean, if I just kind of got up on stage and sat at the piano and sort of didn't do anything, it wouldn't have the same effect, certainly. on It wouldn't, it wouldn't make the same comment on the nature of music. OK, so back on track. Um, so, yeah, so the work on this view is a type whose tokens are performances by musicians in which they aim to and like succeed in remaining silent. So here's a quote from Sorensen to that effect, where he's just describing a performance of the work. Of course, he says, there was the usual coughing and shuffling plus noises that wafted in from outside, but the audience did not count these sounds as part of the performance, just as these sounds don't count as part of the performance in the case of conventional music. So, on this view, just like in the performance of a standard work of music, those sounds would be counted as mere noise or ambient, they would on this, on, you know, according to S2. Wow, that was a good sound. Right. 
So the accidental sounds occurring during the performance are framed by the performance but don't belong to it. They're not constituents of it. And just to clarify what I mean by silent here, I mean the standards for silent operating here, like those for our everyday uses of flat or circular, are less than the strictest possible. So it's okay to say of a performance of 433 that its performers were silent. Yes, of course, their hearts were beating and making a bit of a noise, but we've got less than exact standards for our use of that term in this context. So that's S, the, kind of, you know, the silent work. It directs our attention to these ambient sounds, but doesn't include them within the performance. That's not the standard view held in the literature. Um, the standard view is that the work is what I call R, the sonically replete work. And on this view, the work is a type whose tokens are performances comprising all, or most, a little complication, of the sounds audible at these performances. So on this view, 433 isn't a silent work. A performance just includes all of the sounds taking place at that, in, you know, in that say, concert hall during the temporal boundaries of the performance. Okay, so the sounds comprising a token of the work are overwhelmingly sounds that are not made or selected or appropriated by the people to whom the score is addressed, the work's performance. So the token includes those sounds, but the sounds included within that token are not, well, are largely unperformed sounds. All or most, why the complication here? So there's a nice little question about, so given that the aim of the work is to get us to attend to the sounds normally treated as ambient in concert halls when we go to listen to a piece of music or accidental. What about if um, people in the concert hall deliberately make sounds to stop us from attending to those ambient sounds? What if they want to, as it were, bilk the aim of the work? One might think then that those sounds Will, be, will, will, will not be classed as part of the performance and will be noise occurring at the same time. That's certainly Kanye's view. I'm happy to go with that, um, hence the all or most. You might want to say that you know, if, um, if a couple of people in the, in the audience stand up and sing the Marseillaise with a view to putting everybody off uh, from attending to these ambient sounds, then OK, they're not going to be part of the performance. Fair dues. Nothing much hangs on that. Right, so, um, so my thinking is, well, uh, you know what happens when you do philosophy and you have, you're kind of intrigued by an idea and then you think, oh, what the hell, I'm just going to argue for this. That's kind of what I'm doing here, um, just because it's not the standard view. Let's see how far we can go with this. Let's, let's go with the idea that S, that, you know, that 433 is the silent work rather than the work the um, sonically replete work. So let's disagree with Stephen Davis and Andrew Carnier and the rest and see, and see where that gets us. So, first of all, um, I think that um, Stephen's suggestion that Cage clearly commits to the work being R, the replete work, the sonically replete work, is very overstated. I don't think he clearly commits himself to R rather than S. The thing about John Cage is that he said a number of things that don't sit terribly well together. Um, he's not a philosopher. Uh, he's not particularly interested in the kind of nice questions that we're interested in. He's very interested in the point of this work, it seems to me, um, but not particularly this nice ontological question. Anyway, yes, Cage does say 
that my piece 433 becomes in performance the sounds of the environment. That might encourage the reading according to which a performance of, of the piece includes the sounds that occur within the temporal boundaries. But it seems to me that that's likely to be loose talk, which Cage is just using to remind us of the work's point, which is to get us to attend to the environmental sounds taking place. And in any case, um, Cage calls 433 his silent piece and says he wanted to compose a piece of silence. I mean, so I just think that there's just, you know, it's just not clear um, what Cage thinks, really. I think more interestingly, um, certainly if we take the work to be S, the silent work, then Cage can achieve what he intended to achieve with it. Right, so taking S to be the work is certainly consistent with Cage's aims. So, I mean, of course, you know, one way in which, as it were, the work can draw our attention to everyday sounds is by drawing those sounds into a performance of it, which is the kind of sonically replete view. But another way of doing it is as well, by thinking of the work as kind of hear-through, analogous with see-through, in performance, a work whose performances are constituted by silence and by virtue of being that, thereby bring the, those sounds occurring at that time to our attention. I think likewise, the work can still make the point that sound is ubiquitous. As Cage puts it, there's no such thing as silence. In the following way, a performance can be silent in the kind of everyday, less than strict sense and also draw our attention to the putative impossibility of silence in the strictest sense. Saying, look, here's um, a performance of the silent work. The performers are being silent, yet there are all these sounds taking place that we should be attending to. That's fine. And I think it can still be true as well that a performance of the work can, as Cage puts it, accept ambient sounds and be incapable of being interrupted thereby kind of depends what you mean by acceptance here. Um, I think that the way in which the work or performance of the work accepts ambient sounds could be analogous to the way in which a picture frame accepts what lies within it. And according to that analogy, the ambient sounds accepted by the silent work no more interrupt it than does a picture crowd out its frame. Okay, so that talk can just be interpreted in that kind of metaphorical way. So, so far what I've said is that um, interpreting the work as the silent work is compatible with what Cage says and what his aims are. Well, what about positive reasons for preferring this interpretation? This is where things get a little, little bit more contentious. So, um, one of the things that Cage is clear about is that 4 minutes 33 seconds is a piece for performance, he says on one of the scores, I mean, the original score went missing. Um, but <laughs> yeah. Um, on one of the scores, that it may be performed by any instrumentalist or combination of instrumentalists. And what he's saying there, very clearly, it seems to me, it's not always the case in what Cage says, is that it's a work for performance, whose performers are the musicians on the stage. Now, I find it hard to see how that could be true if the work were the sonically 
replete work. Because it's hard to see how those tokens of the sonically replete work can be performances if so many of their constituent sounds are accidental and are not actually produced or selected or appropriated by the performers. It seems to me that, this is the matter in brackets, if a performance of a work includes sounds, these sounds can only be made, selected or appropriated by its performers, those to whom the score is directed. Otherwise, I mean, otherwise the token is not a performance. Right? So he, Cage wants it to be the case that this is a work for performance. But if, the, but if the token includes all of these unperformed sounds and sounds that have been produced other than by the performers, I think it's wrong to see the token as a performance and hence the work as a work for performance. Right. So if the constituent sounds aren't performed in the sense of being produced by the performers by virtue of following the composer's instructions, or appropriated by the performers, or selected by the performers in virtue of following the composer's instructions. And I don't think we've got a performance of a repeatable work here. We've got a token of a repeatable work, but it's not a work of performance. Okay. Now, I take it that S fares much better on this because the tokens just are the performances by the musicians on the stage. So we preserve the idea that it's a work for, for performance. I mean, so here's what got me thinking along these lines. So Stephen Davies talks about the performances of um, 4 minutes 33 whilst taking those performances to be made up of sounds that are accidental and natural. And I just, find it, I just found it paradoxical from the office to how a performance can include so many of such sounds. Right? I mean, who's doing the performing of those sounds? Okay. I mean, it needn't be that the, that the performers produce the sounds, they could appropriate them, as in the case of Imaginary Landscape Number 4 by twisting the knobs on the radio. But it's got to be the case that the sounds making up the performance have to be produced by people following the composer's instructions. All right, that's the first reason. Second reason for preferring the view of the work as S, it seems to me that um, one of the things that Cage wants us to do is to appreciate the environmental sounds a performance draws our attention to as the pure sounds they are, that's to say, as not having a musical or artistic character. Right. Fully undomesticated. Right. It seems to me that if the work were the sonically replete work, then those sounds would be taken up into a performance of a work of art. And I think that would, give those, that, that, that would make those sounds artistic in character for us. We, we, we'd hear them as... I mean, if we understood the work properly, we'd hear those sounds as constituents of an artistic enterprise and hence as elevated to the status of art. Again, I think that 4 minutes 33 avoids that problem. Uh, for, treating 4 minutes 33 as S avoids that problem because the environmental sounds framed by a performance don't belong to that performance. Right? They're kind of... They direct our the performance directs our attention to those sounds, but those sounds are not actually 
a token of the work. So they're not part of an artwork. So I think those considerations should make us prefer a conception of the work as the silent work rather than the uh, sonically replete work. So there endeth part one of the paper. Um, okay, the art form question. What art form does four minutes 33 seconds belong to? And this is the one where people have a lot of intuitions uh, and are liable to express them vehemently. Um, so, art forms, artistic categories that explain why works of that kind are produced using certain media and not others. You know, why did Roth use words rather than paint to produce American pastoral? Damn it, he was producing a novel, not a painting. Right? You know, why did Rodin use, you know, stone or whatever, if he used the thinker rather than words? He was using a, a sculpture, damn it. Okay, so pitching into this debate about what art form 4 minutes 33 seconds belongs to. Um, the standard view, I think, is that it's not a work of music. Um, although, when I've talked, I talked to some people in Leeds about this, and there they were much less sure about this than I am. Um, Here's what I, and I agree with that standard view, although I don't think people quite give the right reasons for it, but here's, here, here's what I think. So, um, and, I, and, I, and I was called an essentialist um, for my views on music. If that means that there's, a necessary, that there's at least one necessary condition for something being music, means that it's organised sound, I plead guilty. Okay, so... Um, Music. So people produce musical works by working with organising sound. Okay. And if they're producing a repeatable musical work, they're composing a re repeatable musical work, I take it that what they're doing is, what they do is they specify what performers must do to produce a sound event that's a properly formed performance of the work. And that can take the form... You know, within the Western classical tradition of producing a normal kind of score for, say, you know, a Beethoven piano sonata or something. Or in the case of Cage's imaginary landscape number four, there'll be instructions of a slightly unorthodox kind, turn, turn the left-hand knob on radio number seven, two turns to the left, and the right-hand knob, three turns to the right, and see what happens kind of thing. But there are, in there are instructions for producing a well-formed token, well-formed performance of the work. Or else, if we're, if we're thinking about what you might call works which are one-offs, kind of pure improvisations, a musician decides on the fly how a sound sequence should develop and, so to speak, is working with not, not as it were, types of sound as the composer of the repeatable work is, but token sounds on the fly. So it might be an urban myth that Jarrett did this, but he, he walked onto the stage in Cologne and just started playing and just played for about two and a half hours at the Cologne concert. And it was meant, you know, uh, the, 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 the official doctrine that, uh, there is that he just improvised, just freely improvised. But he was kind of deciding on the fly how the sound sequence would develop. Now, I take it that 433 is a repeatable work, but that Cage in no sense organises sound as a composer of repeatable musical works does. Okay. Uh, 
of course, you know, talk of organising sound is metaphorical in this case. What, he's do, you know, what, what, what composers do is give instructions for producing sound sequences that are properly formed tokens of the work. In that sense, organisation. Um, so I, I take it that 433 fails to meet this organised sound condition, uh, which I think is necessary for being music, on either ontological proposal. So take the view of the work as silent. Well, the work's performances aren't sound events. Okay. Um, you know, the sounds are pointed at by the work, not, not in any sense organised by it. So there's no organisation taking place. The performance is just the musician's silence. That draws our attention to those sounds. There's no sense in which those sounds are organised by Cage through his, um, you know, through the, the, the performers following his instructions, as would be the case in, say, a performance of a Beethoven piano sonata. That's just not happening. I mean, it might be that Cage might predict the kinds of sounds that might occur, particularly if he was expecting a performance to take place in the Bridgewater Hall, Manchester. There would be some road noise, right? But there's no sense in which that is organised. I think organisation, if you organise your sock drawer, you know, you kind of move things around a bit. You don't just kind of point at it. Okay. Um, I'll say in parentheses, some people think there can be silent music, music made up wholly of silence. So the sorts of rests that take place in standard musical works, well, maybe there could just be a work that was just an extended version of that. But I'm just inclined to, I'm just inclined to say no. And for a similar reason to the reason why you can't have a sentence just composed of the sorts of things that would be gaps between words. I wouldn't call that a sentence. Um, in conversation, Aaron Meskin said, well, couldn't, couldn't we think of 4 minutes 33 as being kind of like um, music, but with this um, kind of really contra-standard uh, property, using the kind of Waltonian term, of being composed wholly of silence? And that might really, really explain um, the shock that people feel when they first listen to, a, what, listen to a performance on it. This is a really contra-standard property, the sort of property that kind of counts against its being music, but nonetheless it is music, Aaron thinks. I wasn't too convinced by that. Um, I, ju <laughs> I, think God, I, you know, I just think that, that, that uh, for something to be music, it has to be organised sound. But I also think that we can explain the shock, if there is shock that people feel, by just thinking that, well, you know, in, in, in this way, they turn up perhaps um, fresh-faced, expecting to hear a work of music, and they don't. They're presented with something else. That something else, it seems to me, is a repeatable work of performance art, rather than music. So though you know, the work is in part about music, it's not a work of music. In the abstract, I, th I say, oh, it's a work of theatre. I don't think it's a work of theatre either, actually. Um, there are certain theatrical elements, kind of gesture, that are used, but um, for sure the musicians aren't acting. Um, so I think it's, a, it's better seen as a kind of repeatable work of performance art. And interestingly, this isn't an argument, folks, interestingly, Alan Capro, the originator of The Happening, 
was one of Cage's students. Um, you know, so it's, it's kind of a repeatable work of performance art. There are other such repeatable works. I mean, to be a work of performance art, a work needn't be an unrepeatable one-off. So if you take a work like um, Vito Conchi's Seedbed, do you know about this, this work? It's not very nice. It, uh, it's basically, it's the wanking piece. Right? He's just underneath a, a, a ramp, working away, saying kind of lewd things about the people who are walking over the top. That's repeat, it's repeatable. He's, he's performed it in many different places. Uh, that's show business. <laughs> I guess. All right. Um, so this is a work of, you know, a repeatable work of performance art, and, and to that extent, a bit like Seedbed, but not as horrid. Right, okay. So now I'm on to the third part of the talk. I think I'm doing okay for time. Yeah. It'll be about ten minutes, if that. So now we're on to the question of what genre... 433 belongs to. So I think it's, I think it's, you know, ontologically speaking, I think it's best seen as the silent work. Uh, it's not music. It's a repeatable work of performance art. What genre does it belong to? Well, what are genres? Well, there are artistic categories that group together works, roughly speaking, not according to the media those works are in, but according to the purpose with which these works were produced and hence how they should be appreciated and evaluated. So think, think of categories like tragedy, comedy, noir, satire, maybe even feminist art is a, is a genre. Um, I think what's important about genres is that they can be cross-media. Okay, so novels and films can be noirs, films, plays and graphic novels can be tragedies, etc., etc. Some genres are cross-media, cross-art form, in other words. So I'm working up to an answer to the genre question. So, conceptual art, it seems to me, is a cross-media genre. Um, it seems... Uh, I've already noticed in this talk, there's a lot of it seems to me that P, therefore P, um, going on, but don't, don't be alarmed. Um, it, it, <laughs> it seems to me that, that um, the obvious thing to say about conceptual art, ontologically speaking, is that works of conceptual art are ontologically diverse. Right? So they can, they can, you know, you can have conceptual artworks of very different ontological categories. So maybe some, some such works are material objects. So Duchamp's Fountain, you know, the, the urinal with R. Mutt, 1917, written on it. The obvious thing to say about that, although some people have denied it, is that it's, it, it's the urinal, the work is the urinal. Uh, and then you've got works like Robert Barry's Inert Gas Helium. He went off into the desert and released some helium into the atmosphere. Um, the way in which he described that work as taking place at a certain time suggests to me that maybe the artwork there is an event. The event of his releasing the helium into the atmosphere, which he recorded with some photographs. It looks like the, the artwork's an event. And maybe some such um, conceptual artworks are types. So Robert Barry's All the Things I Know But of Which I'm Not at the Moment Thinking is just that text. And he says that it can, be, it, it can take many forms. Right? So it, you, know, you, could, you could sort of instantiate that work over there. 
or over there or on a chalkboard or whiteboard, wherever. It looks as if the work there is a type. Roughly speaking, it will be a kind of a, um, uh, a sentence type or a string, linguistic string type. Okay, so it seems to me that, um, as I said, conceptual arts across media genre. Yes, works of conceptual art are ontologically diverse, but what makes something a conceptual work has nothing to do with the technologies used in its production, but with its point. I take it its point is to provide us with intellectual rather than aesthetic interest. That's what makes something a conceptual work. This is very, kind of rough and ready. I'm following Goldie and Shellicans here, right, who are the experts, okay, on this. Um, so, for example, if you, if you come across Fountain and you marvel at the beautiful kind of the beautiful curves on this piece, the wonderful shiny kind of lustrous surface, I think you've rather missed the point of the work. The work maybe it does have these you know, aesthetic features, but the point of the work is to take us to a region more intellectual, perhaps than than aesthetic. Okay. So you know what I'm going to say now. I'm going to say that 433 is a work of conceptual art. And that its value uh, lies in the intellectual interest it affords us. That's to say, getting us to see that sounds are ubiquitous and can be appreciated, appreciated aesthetically as sounds. Now, of course, in a successful performance of the piece, I take it you will aesthetically appreciate these sounds as sounds. But the work itself quasi-silent work, is not itself appreciated aesthetically. It's here through. It's aesthetically inert, but it's something which enables us to appreciate, if it works on us well, it gets us to appreciate the sounds it points to for the sounds they are aesthetically. Just to reinforce a point, um, you know, the distinction between genres and art forms here, and that you can have cross-media genres. So on this view, 433 is both a work of performance art, that's the art form, and it's a piece of conceptual art, that's the genre. Okay. So it could be a piece of music and a piece of conceptual art. It just isn't a piece of music in my view. Okay, so now I'm getting really towards the end here. Um, so look, where does this leave us? I've answered the three questions, and I think it might enable us to be a little less irate um, uh, about this piece. So, as Cage reports, much of the annoyance audiences felt towards the piece was based on the assumption, and partly this was, I think, encouraged by Cage himself, that we should assess the work as a work of music. And assessed as a work of music, you might think this is just a gigantic cheat. Right? But maybe once we assign the work to the art form performance art and the genre conceptual art, some of that resentment will dissipate. Um, so it has been said um, by, golly, what's his, Alex Ross, that while scorn for avant-garde music is still rife, scorn for avant-garde art is much less widespread. I think that's probably true. I mean, there's something about the conventions of, of, of the kind of performance spaces when it comes to music. Um, you know, you're not for example, you're not really allowed to walk out. You've just got to sit there and bear it. Um, which means that I think people who don't like avant-garde music get really annoyed <laughs> by it. You can't walk away from it like you can from, you know, maybe a piece of performance art or, 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 or you know, visual art to the like. 
Anyway, so if we assign the work to, 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 you know, to, to these categories, performance art, conceptual art, say, and it's not music, it's not meant to be music. It's maybe about music. Maybe some of that resentment will dissipate. And perhaps audiences are now familiar enough with conceptual art and performance art um, to kind of know what they're letting themselves in for once they kind of listen to it under those categories, particularly thinking of it as conceptual art. Okay, okay so the point here is to get us to think about something or you know, to kind of make us realise that the sounds that we normally ignore have aesthetic value in themselves. Okay. So, I mean, maybe this is over-optimistic. So maybe, you know, in seeing 433 in this way, we can begin to make sense of it and be delighted by it. That's my thought. Okay. And I've finished. Thanks very much.